uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those are, those that are, and those are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty Father, it is a it is an audacious thing that we say today. It is an audacious thing. To look at death and say death has been defeated. It is an audacious thing to say that this man, Jesus Christ, really, really died and really, really rose again. And yet, as audacious as it is, we join with millions, billions who have gone before us who have cried out, Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that has become the animating center of their lives. That has fueled their hope. That has fueled their hope in the face of tragedy, in the face of death. That hope has fueled love and service and risky service and courageous living. And so we are eager to stand in that line. And so Father, we come before you and we ask that you will persuade us not of some fantasy, not some uh, psychological trick, but will you persuade us of what is true? And will you grant us to see the beauty of Jesus Christ? So Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to work very deeply in all of us to get our attention, to show us what we need to see, to overcome the obstacles so that we meet your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, friends, um, <clears throat> it's wonderful to see you, kind of see you, not really see you, but a little bit see you. Um, it's Easter, right? It's, it's Easter, and we've already been saying it um, all morning long, but we're going to say it again, and it's not the last time we're going to say it. We're going to say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And hopefully you're all saying, he is risen indeed. Um, now, <clears throat> Alleluia, Christ is risen is the most joyful thing that a Christian can say. Like, it doesn't get better than that. There's no acclamation that we can say that is more full of joy than Alleluia, Christ is risen. Now, it's a very audacious thing, as I was just praying, but it is a thing that is full of joy. And as I was thinking about that this week, and thinking about today, and thinking about all that's going on in the world, in our city this week, um, a question came up for me. And, um, and it's a question that's been somewhat addressed already um, by, by Lydia, but I think it's a question that the rest of us can wrestle through. And here's the, here's the question that came up for me this week. How dare we say something so celebratory and so joyous on a week like this week? Um, and I say that because uh, this week here in New York City, as in many other places around the world and in this country, has been a week where death, in a way that is not normal for most of us, death has been uh, just staring us in the face. And it's tragic. Every single day this week here in New York City, hundreds, hundreds, like a lot of hundreds of people have died uh, because of COVID-19 every day. Not over the course of the week, every single day. And this week, thousands of people have died in this country. And I don't know how many thousands, tens and tens of thousands of people have died around the world in the last month because of this coronavirus. Millions of people around the world are in grief and billions of people around the world have had their lives turned upside down because of this coronavirus. And, and, some, and, and all of us on this call, the reason we're looking through Zoom right now is because our life has been turned upside down. And for some of us, our, our, our jobs are no longer there. Um, our finances are getting to the red line or underneath it. And it's in all of this, it seems to me that we have to ask the question, how can we possibly justify celebrating in the face of such death and grief and suffering? Doesn't that seem like a valid question? Or maybe I could put it this way. What word can Easter possibly say to a world facing such death? Grief, pain, suffering. And let me, you know, it seems to me that just right out of the gate, we need to say what it, what it shouldn't be. It can't be just mere uh, get your chin up optimism, right? Like um, sometimes people say, hey, Easter, Easter bunnies and like lilies, Lilies remind us of spring. Spring follows, you know, I don't know, winter. And then flowers remind us that we'll make it through. I don't know, something like that. But you've heard things like that, haven't you? Like Hallmark card stuff. And it's got to be more than that. And part of the reason it has to be more than that is that the coronavirus crisis that we're in right now, it, 
you know, it brings us kind of face to face with death in a way that most of us aren't used to. Doctors maybe see this all the time, but most of us don't have to deal with this in just this way. But here's the deal. Once, once we're past this crisis, whatever that means, none of us, right? I hate to say it. None of us are going to escape death. Like that, there's still a hundred percent death rate. And there's no vaccine for it. So in face of all of that, it seems, let me rephrase the question just a little bit. Uh, what word can Easter possibly say to us? What message can Easter give us, given that we live in a world where death gets us in the end, where death wins in the end? That's the question that's up for me right now. Now, I appreciate that that's a pretty heavy way to start, right? Um, but the reason I do that is it seems to me that if Easter can't deal with heavy, then Easter's a sham. So let's see if Easter can deal with heavy. Here's the question. What does Easter have to say to us in a world where death wins? And, and to address that question, I want to look at the first reading, uh, the reading that Melissa read for us from uh, Revelation. So flip over uh, to that reading and let me just set the stage. It's kind of a case study in how uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacted one man who was face to face with death. Here's the scene. Um, this is the last book in the Bible, the very end of the, of the New Testament. Uh, and it's written, the speaker, the one who's saying I, is a guy called John. Um, he was John, the disciple of Jesus, the apostle. Um, and, but this, when the, when the scene opens, we're like 50 or 60 years after Jesus's death and resurrection. So this is old man, John, this isn't young John. And John, as we meet him in the book of Revelation and in our reading, he is face to face with death. So like I say, uh, he's an old man, he's, he's 80, he's in his 80s, maybe his 90s, we're not sure. But the thing is, he is experiencing just the opposite of a happy retirement. <clears throat> um, all of his close friends are dead. The original 12 disciples of Jesus, uh, they're all of them, except for John, dead at this point. And all of them, to our knowledge, died violently at the hands of people like the Romans or other empires. So John, when we open, when the scene opens, he's the last man standing. And tradition tells us, this doesn't come from the Bible, but tradition tells us that just before writing this, uh, John was tortured by the Romans and he was dipped or dipped in hot oil or hot oil was poured over him or, or something like that, but he was terrible. And now he's in quarantine. Uh, but but the, like the legally imposed kind, he's in jail. He's in jail on an island called Patmos. And he's all alone. And it appears that he's received news from the mainland. And the news appears to suggest that his life's work is falling apart. So John, uh, uh, for 50 or 60 years, ever since he met Jesus, ever since Jesus's death and resurrection, John has spent his life um, teaching other people to follow Jesus and then gathering those followers of Jesus into communities, which we call churches. But now he's just found out that his churches that he's poured his life into, they're not doing well. So Rome, the Roman Empire, um, you know, their best weapon uh, was death, suffering, force. 
and in a world where everything dies, if you can wield death, I, you know, it's a pretty uh, strong weapon. And Rome was persecuting these churches that John had nurtured, and some of them uh, were, were, were being crushed. And the ones that weren't being crushed, the stronger ones, the ones that seemed to be on the outside doing well, were actually not doing well because apparently they had been slipping into a kind of cold religious hypocrisy. Now, just pause for a second, because if you spend any time with Jesus in the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus just has no time for religious hypocrisy. Jesus, all through his ministry, he stood against religious hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, and probably everybody on this call would agree that religious hypocrites are the worst kind of hypocrites that there are. And Jesus agrees. And so now John hears that some of the churches are, are the most faithful ones are being um, uh, crushed by Rome and persecution. And the other ones, many of the other ones are sliding into a, this compromised hypocritical kind of religion, which is exactly what Jesus 50 and 60 years before had stood against. And so John hears about this Given that everything that John is facing, he is face to face with death. His own death is any moment. He's facing the death of people he loved. And he's facing the death of everything that he spent his life to build. Now, that's the context. And the question again is, what word can Easter possibly give a man who is watching everything die around him? He is watching death when? Well, look at verse 10. When the scene opens, it's Sunday. We know that because John calls it the Lord's Day. That's what they called Sunday. And John is worshiping. John says, while I was in the spirit. So that was a way of, of saying he's, he's worshiping. So he's doing what we're doing now, kind of. And he's thinking about the resurrection of Jesus because Christians, when they worship on Sunday, not just Easter Sunday, but every Sunday, we think about the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we worship on Sundays. Anyways, while he's worshiping and praying, verse 10, take a look at it. John says, I heard behind me a loud voice. Now we're going to follow that voice uh, throughout the sermon. A loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it and then it lists all the churches that John's concerned about. Now stop for a minute and follow the voice that John hears. John hears a voice. <clears throat> and it's the scariest voice he's ever heard. Uh, verse 10, it sounds like a trumpet. Verse 15, it's like uh, Niagara Falls. But the thing is, it's not um, pretty trumpet. It's not pretty Niagara Falls. It's scary trumpet. It's scary Niagara Falls. In verse 17, John turns to see who the voice is and he says, when I turned, I saw him. Stop. Remember that this is 50, 60 years, we're not sure, after Jesus' death and resurrection. John has not seen Jesus in 50 or 60 years, but here he stands and he, or he turns and he sees Jesus. But we're not going to go into it much, but he sees Jesus and Jesus doesn't look like what John remembers. Jesus, this is like, do you see the description of Jesus? It's like scary psychedelic Jesus, you know, which there's a lot of symbolism there. We're not going to deal with any of it today because we don't have time. But he turns, verse 17, and John falls at the feet of Jesus as though dead. And then Jesus lays his right hand on John and he says this, and, and this is what you need to listen to. Fear not, 
says Jesus. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Stop, because everything is in that verse. Now remember the question. What word can Easter possibly give to a world in which death wins in the end? Or think about John. What word could John possibly receive that would address the fact that he was living in a world in which death was winning everywhere around him? What's Jesus's word to him? We'll look at verse 18. John or Jesus looks at John and says quite simply, John, death doesn't win. Death doesn't win in the end. It looks like you live in a world in which death wins in the end, but Jesus says to John, you're wrong. Things are not as they seem. Death doesn't win. And we can elaborate it just a little bit. And just imagine it's a little bit like this. It's as if Jesus looks at John and says, John, um, do you remember my death on the cross, John? You remember my death on the cross 50, 60 years ago. You remember it. It's as if Jesus says to John, you remember it, John, because you were there. All the other disciples, at least all the men, left. The women were there, and it's as if Jesus says to John, John, you were the only man of my disciples who was at the cross. And you watched me hang there, John. When almost everybody else ran away, you stayed. It's as if Jesus says to John, you stayed. You were there. Do you remember that, John? And I kind of imagine old man John on the ground, lifting up his eyes with tears in them and looking at Jesus and saying, yeah, I remember. I remember I was there and I watched you die. I remember the whole thing because when you died, when I saw you die upon the cross, it was like my world died too. And I still remember the silent, heaving sobs that after a while you don't give voice to them anymore. You just heave in silence and your body convulses in the pain. I remember that. It's as if John says to Jesus, yes, I remember that. I remember a grief too deep to bear tears. And when, you, when I looked up and I saw that corpse hanging on the cross, it's as if John says to Jesus, I knew in that moment that death won. Death won. And it was like I heard wretched tyrant death laughing over me, laughing over me. It's as if John says to Jesus, yeah, I remember. But then Jesus comes back to John and says, but John, verse 18, John, it's as if Jesus, well, Jesus says in verse 18, I died and behold, or remember, or watch this, I raised from the dead and I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, death was defeated at my death, Jesus says. And Jesus says, my resurrection means that death does not actually end up winning in the end. So back to the question, 
What does Easter have to say to a world in which death wins in the end? And Jesus's simple answer is it doesn't. Death doesn't win. It didn't win for Jesus. It won't win for those who belong to Jesus by faith, and it need not win for anybody because Jesus offers to rescue anyone who will surrender to him. When we say, Alleluia, Christ is risen, it means death has been defeated. Now, let me pause here and try to turn just a little bit and apply this. How, what difference does this make for us? And, and here's a little bit the way I describe it. When you really grasp the resurrection of Jesus Christ and when you uh, give Jesus your allegiance and you surrender to him, it enables you uh, to do two different things at the same time that seem to be contradictory. Here's what I mean. It enables you on the one hand uh, to look at death right in the face. It allows you to look at death in all its ugliness. You look and see the ugly, vile, grievous reality of death. And we don't paper it over. We don't try to put makeup on it. We don't try to spin it. We don't try to say, oh, it's all fine because it's part of nature. We don't do anything like that. We look at this world and we see on the one hand, it's full of beauty, but on the other hand, it is full of tragedy. And when you really take the resurrection of Jesus seriously, it allows you to look death square in the face, right in the eyes. And it allows you to say, it is grievous and you weep. But then on the other hand, and at the same moment, when you really grasp the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you've given Jesus the deep allegiance of your heart and you've surrendered to him, you can also, at the same time, with tears in your eyes, seeing the ugliness of death, at the same time, you're able to have real joy and real hope that triumphs through fear. How can those two things happen? How can you look, be absolutely realist and at the same time, full of hope and joy? We can do those things both because of what our reading says. Look at it again. Jesus gives two commands to John in verse 17 and 18. On the first, first he says, behold. Now, in a lot of our translations, we just kind of, you know, that's an archaic holdover from the King James. It's not, it's in the Greek. It means look, watch, pay attention. The first command is behold. The second command is Fear not, don't be afraid. And those two commands work together. Here's what I mean. How can we be liberated from fear in a world that's still filled with death? Well, you gotta look at Jesus and then look at your fears in the context of Jesus. Here's what I mean. First, look at Jesus. And in particular, in the reading, notice what Jesus is holding in his hand. Verse 18, he's holding, do you notice this? He's holding keys. Now, keys, uh, keys are, can be a, a sign of access. Uh, keys can also be a sign of authority. Uh, key, if you have authority over your car, if you've got the keys. If you've got authority over your home, if you've got the keys. Um, when you get the keys to your new house, that means you own it, things like that. Now, Jesus is holding keys. What is Jesus controlling? What authority is he exerting with these keys? look at it again. He's holding the keys 
of death in Hades. He's exerting authority over death and Hades. Now, consider that. We live in a world where it at least looks like death wins. But Jesus's resurrection means that 2,000 years ago, there was a revolution, a, a coup d'etat. And when Jesus died, he went into death, and so to speak, he went into death like a combatant. He went into death doing battle. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ means Jesus won. Jesus defeated the power of death, which means death now is under his control, which is to say he can open it up and reverse it for people. But then, on the one hand, Jesus is holding the keys, but look at what Jesus, look at Jesus's right hand. Look at verse 17. So John's petrified, right? Because he turns around, he sees Jesus. Jesus is not looking like Jesus used to look like, and he's like scary psychedelic Jesus. So John falls to his face as if he's dead, which is slightly ironic, but we're not going to go there. And Jesus reaches out his right hand, very important, his right hand and touches John. Now the right hand in this context and in this culture, it's the hand of blessing. It's the hand of favor. It's the hand of kindness. It's the hand of love. It's the hand of grace. So think about Jesus's two hands. On the one hand, he holds the greatest authority in the universe, the keys of death and Hades. With the other hand, he marshals all that authority to shield and to protect and to bless and to save and to rescue his people. Look at Jesus Christ's risen hands. Sovereignty and power in one, grace and mercy in the other, and they're always working together. That's why you look at the risen Jesus. Look at his power, look at his grace, and then with that fresh in your mind, then go to your fears. Because here's the thing, your fears will be reframed in the context of Jesus's two hands. If I, here's what I mean, if I belong to Jesus Christ, who's sovereign and gracious and merciful and kind and loving at the same time, and I belong to him, then even though I live in a world full of scary things, and let's face it, we live in a world full of scary things. No use acting like we don't, we do. But nevertheless, if I belong to the one who in the left hand holds the keys of death in Hades and in the other hand blesses me, then I can know freedom and peace and hope and joy. Because I know that no matter what it is that I face, Jesus Christ has faced it before me and he's faced worse and he got through it and he promises to use all of his sovereign authority to lead me through it too and lead me ultimately to himself. And when that comes clear, now follow me here. When I sense that security in Jesus's love and in his power and sovereignty, when that really gets down deep in my soul, I will be free. What will I be free to do? Thank you for asking. You always ask good questions. I will be free to love other people and serve other people at great personal risk and cost. Why? Because I'll no longer have to worry so much about protecting myself. Here's what I mean. The higher your confidence in Christ, in his power and in his grace, 
the lower your fear will be for yourself and the bigger your love will be for other people. Um, one of the kind of fun things about the book of Revelation is that we actually have um, historical record of at least one person that we think may have been uh, among the first people to ever receive the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation was originally a letter or a series of letters sent out to a bunch of churches. Um, one of the guys that we think may well have received uh, Revelation, like at the beginning, was a guy called Polycarp. Polycarp led a great name, eh? Polycarp. Love, love the name. He led a church uh, in uh, Smyrna. It's one of these little churches that was being crushed under the weight of Rome. Many, many, many years later, when Polycarp was super old, so another, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years after John, uh, Polycarp had been leading the church in Smyrna for a long time, um, and the Romans were trying to get him to kill him. And one day they found him. They knocked on his door one morning. As Polycarp opened the door, he's an old man in his 80s, and, and the Roman soldiers are there. Um, and Polycarp knows what's going on. He's seen this happen. He's... Um, and he knows that they're, they're coming to kill him. You know what he asked them? He asked them if they were hungry. You hungry? Soldiers that want to kill me, you hungry? Ends up they were. So he brings them in, make sure they get breakfast. And while he, they have breakfast, he prays. And then he gets up and he goes with them. And they take him and there's a trial and you can read all about it. And it was a remarkable trial. But the thing that I want to show you, and, and they, they kill him. But the thing that I want to show you is this. Here is a man who's deeply internalized the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the message of the book of Revelation. And what, how does it transform him? It means he can face death with no fear and at the same time, love other people, even his enemies at great personal cost. Only the resurrection of Jesus will do that. And the resurrection of Jesus has been doing that for 2,000 years. So what can Easter say to a world where death appears to win? Well, first, we live in a world where death has been defeated by Jesus. And then secondly, the only way we can live free in this world is to surrender ourselves to Jesus so that his victory becomes our victory. And that brings me to those of us who do not belong to Jesus. Some of us here, I can imagine, are sitting here going, this is a lovely story, but it's an unlikely story. And how in the world can we know if it's true? How can in the world can we know if Jesus really rose from the dead? And if that's the question that's up for you, it's, let me just say, that is exactly the right question. Thank you for asking that question. Everything rides on that question. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we all have to face the stark reality that death in fact does win. And everything that we fear is going to plant us in the end. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then that means that there has been a regime change at the heart of the universe. And whenever there's a regime change, those of us under the new regime, we need to shift our allegiance to that new regime. And when you look at Jesus Christ, you find the Lord who is full of kindness and mercy. And there is no one better to give your allegiance to than Jesus Christ. And when you do, his victory will become your victory and death won't get you in the end. And so you're right to ask the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? 
everything rides on that question. Please don't brush that question aside. Like when we're off this call and you go on about your week, don't brush that question aside. Go hard on that question. And I want, I want and actually I want to invite you, if you want to, I will personally meet with you to discuss whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. I'd love to do that. And what, what we'll do, if you want to do this, if you're serious about exploring Jesus, I will absolutely, we'll figure out a Zoom call because everything's Zoom. And we'll read Jesus's primary documents. We'll read the gospel so you don't take my word for it. You take Jesus's word for it. And we'll pummel him with all our hardest questions because if he can't take those questions, then it's ridiculous. He can. So if you want to do that, would you email me? Email emmanuel at emmanuelanglicannyc.com. Somebody can somebody put that on the chat? That'd be, thanks. That'd be really helpful. Um, Emmanuel at EmmanuelAnglicanNYC.com. And we'll set up a time and we'll talk about it. Because we live in a world where we are, all of us going to have to come face to face with death. If there is protection and victory, don't you want to live under it? And that's why in this week, of all weeks, it's crucial that we're able to say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.